happy Saturday. It's September 23rd, 2023, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in London. And I'm Michael Haney in New York City. And we are two of your airmail editors here to talk about the notions of liberty and justice for all, Michael. Very grandiose for this Saturday morning. Wow, it sounds like you've got a badge and you're taking names. What is going on? Well, we have a lot in the issue this way that's sort of all about rectifying wrongs. We've got Alessandra Stanley on the environment. We have Stu Heritage on Russell Brandt. By the way, have you been following this Russell Brandt situation? I've been following it out of the corner of my eye a little bit. It's gotten very naughty and complex, but... Fortunately, Stuart Heritage has a story this week, right? Yes, do make sense of it all for us. And he traces Brandt's move to being, in short, like a far-right whack job as a means of possibly distracting and potentially even covering up his bad behavior. It's really interesting the way Stu pieces it all together. But, you know, this is one of the things we could have seen coming. And I can't remember who it was. Maybe it was Graydon on a call earlier this week that said Russell Brandt had many sins, but one of them surely had to be that for a comedian, he just wasn't very funny. Well... I always said his humor from the drop was sloppy, and probably his life has been sloppy too. So we'll see. But as you note, we've got a terrific show this week filled with great guests and stories. And if you're in New York City, you know the endless motorcades and blocked off streets mean that the world leaders are in town for their annual opening of the UN and the Global Climate Summit where they will attempt to address the crisis around the climate. But Alessandra Stanley is going to join us this week, and she's going to tell us about the people who might actually save the planet and how there may be the most loathed people on Earth, lawyers. She'll join us to explain. Then, on the subject of disliked people, we have a story about the dying art of the literary feud. Alexandra Wolfe, who is the daughter of the late novelist Tom Wolfe, joins us to discuss how her father relished butting heads with the literary establishment. And finally, J. Clara Chan will join us from Los Angeles with a report on a prestigious L.A. prep school that has seen three student suicides in the past six months and left administrators scrambling. So Ashley, where would you like to begin today? I think we should talk to Alessandra about the environment. She is the co-editor of Airmail, one of our fearless leaders, and has a long history in journalism at the New York Times. She was the television critic. Before that, she was the bureau chief in Rome. And before that, she was the bureau chief in Moscow. So she knows a lot about everything. And we're very happy to have her here. Welcome, Alessandra. Alessandra... You know, you and I love a Mark Darcy, fact is fact, but it turns out the lawyers might be the ones to save us from imminent climate disaster. What exactly is going on? Well, I think when you lose faith in everything else, what's left along with cockroaches are lawyers. And it does seem like when it comes to this problem with global warming, the last resort is the best resort, which is litigate. And so you have all these lawsuits that remind you kind of big tobacco back in the day. If you have enough lawsuits, eventually those companies will have to bend. First of all, who's suing and who are they suing? Right now, this case that has everybody interested is California, and that's for a couple reasons. One, California is actually living our future because they've been having these wildfires and biblical floods and sea level rise and tropical storms. But it's also the wealthiest state in the country. It's got a GDP that's higher than France's. So the fact that California is taking on all these five majors, not just because they failed to reduce emissions or not just because they've created tens of billions in damages, they're also being sued for lying about the dangers. So it's a big deal. This case is a big deal because California is a big deal and suing all the majors at once is a very big deal. 
Now, we know that the oil companies are going to be throwing tons of money at these lawsuits, and this litigation is going to be working its way through the courts for years. But what does it really mean? Should we feel hopeful of some sort of a settlement, or is this really more of an accountability play? Well, it's a little bit of both. For a long time, companies like Exxon and Flip have had to sort of settle suits that were annoying because it costs less to pay a couple hundred million than to go through tons and tons and tons of litigation and appeals. It's just that right now they're being sued in so many different places at so many different ways in nationally and globally that even they are going to have a hard time. It's again why people want to think about big tobacco at a certain point. It just it's not just the money they're spending on challenging all these lawsuits. It's the discovery process in trial when all your secret memos and suppressed documents and studies come out that it happened with big tobacco. So it could happen here, too. Well, let's also talk about the Supreme Court ruling in the 2010 Citizens United case. I mean, that really established that corporations are basically people. How does that impact this litigation? Well, basically, it allows corporations to argue that they have First Amendment's rights just like and protections just as people do so that when they do some greenwashing and minimize the dangers that's free speech it's not false advertising and that's going to be one of the big battles in court i think coming up is i think they've been making that argument for a long time but i think all these lawsuits are chipping away at that and if they have to go all the way to the supreme court that's not good for them alessandra in addition to the lawsuits here in the us there are also some interesting lawsuits happening as you note in europe and the rest of the world like this one in portugal that you mentioned in your column well let's talk about portugal because we i think a lot of your listeners will remember the montana case this summer when the montana district judge ruled that these young kids in Montana, their rights had been violated because in the Constitution, it says they have a right to a healthy environment. That probably wouldn't have happened five years ago or 10. Now in Europe, Portuguese has also been disproportionately impacted by all this global warming. And they've, they're suing 32 different European countries for failing to meet their commitments under the Paris, do you know the Paris Agreement in 2015, which is actually legally binding. So they have a good shot. And it's just another shot across the bow. But if you're playing whack-a-mole with all these different lawsuits, at a certain point, you're going to have to change your ways. There's just no getting around it. But you know, my favorite case is the Swiss ladies. Do you know this one? Tell us about it. Okay. So before the young people in Portugal sued, very, very old ladies in Switzerland sued. And they're no, I can't pronounce the German, but they're basically the climate ladies, and they sued the government of Switzerland for not protecting their health because of the problems of green glass. And they're taking it now to Strasbourg, too. But there's just something wonderful about these very little old ladies kind of ganging up. I found it quite charming. And I just kept seeing the movie version where Maggie Smith would be in a dirndl or be one of those, what is it, in <laughs> the best endangered Marigold Hotel. So I love that case, but it won't, we won't know what happens with it till next year. Well, as you write in your view from here this week, mitigation helps, but litigation is so much more fun. Once again, something we need on a t-shirt. <laughs> Thank you so much, Alessandra. No, it's my pleasure. Michael, I love this. Let's let lawyers save the day. Why not? They're just as good as superheroes and anyone else, right? They're no longer boring paper pushers. No, you know, the old, the old song, send lawyers guns and money. So it's, we've got, they've lawyers, 
Let's send them in and see what they can do. Young people, it's time to start suing your government for a future thwarted and jeopardized. As long as you're not suing Michael and I, we don't care what you do. Something else that's about the future is what's happening in Los Angeles with this story at a prep school there that J. Clara Chan has reported for us this week. Harvard Westlake is one of those fancy independent prep schools in Los Angeles. It's for children in grades 7 through 12. And it's had just oodles of famous alumni. Candace Bergen, Jamie Lee Curtis, Sarah Moonves, Ethan Peck, Ben Platt. I mean, it's just like everybody who's everybody in LA went there at some point. And it's had a lot of troubling things in the realm of mental health. And Claire is here to tell us all about it. She is a tech and culture reporter based in Los Angeles who writes often for The Hollywood Reporter, The Atlantic, The Wrap, and New York Magazine. Welcome, Clara. Hi. So, Clara, Harvard Westlake is a small private school in Los Angeles for middle and high school students, but they've had three suicides in their community among students in a very short time frame. What exactly is going on? Well, it seems like since March to about August, three students unfortunately died by suicide. And I do want to stress it's impossible to point to why exactly they may have done this, but it's obviously causing some concern within the L.A. prep school community and among students, of course, about what this means about attending such a high-stress, prestigious school. Rates of suicide nationwide are increasing, so it's kind of a perfect storm, so to speak. So how has the school reacted to this, and what are you hearing from inside the community? Right after, I want to say, the second death happened, it was around the fourth quarter of the last academic year. Um, school certainly went in crisis mode, understandably. At the time, they paused grading, so they said whatever your grade was for that quarter, it wouldn't dip below. Still have to submit tests and exams and essays and whatnot, but we don't want you to have the stress of concern of your grades going down. That's not happening into the new year, but they've released sort of this school-wide mental health and wellness plan that's supposed to target sort of different facets of student life to improve student mental health, to better support students. It's certainly a working document, so it's probably too early to say what kind of effects it will have on the student body, but they're certainly working on something school-wide. I think, Clara, rather than get into the specifics of what happened with these students, because as you say, it's impossible to surmise or make conjecture on it, but this is really part of a broader conversation about mental health among young people in the U.S., It's probably at some point an amalgamation of factors, right? You've got the pandemic, which was obviously horrific for all of these matters. And then you have social media, which is notoriously toxic for mental health as well. How do you piece it all together? I mean, certainly if somebody had the answer, we wouldn't be having these tragedies. But it is certainly a very difficult time to be a young adult in America. I mean, to all the factors that you just said, even thinking about the education system, it's harder and harder to get into a college and especially with the high achieving students like this in a very close knit community. Ivy League is certainly something that many people strive for. And when you feel that pressure coming from your parents, from your peers, even from yourself, it can be a lot to handle. So that's certainly one factor. I think also it should be noted that mental health care in in the U.S. is it can be very prohibitive to many people. There still is a stigma around seeking mental health care. As much as I like to think it's gotten better, it's whether those conversations are or are not happening in a family, whether or not seeking care, going to a therapist, things like that may or may not be welcome in a family. So there are a lot of factors. So it's, it's really hard to pinpoint to like one or two or three things. But certainly it's as you were saying, it's an amalgamation of all of these factors. 
Are you hearing anything, Clara, from students at Harvard West? Like, is anyone trying to place the responsibility or blame among any particular institution? Or is it more of a broader question of what's going on in the culture? I think it's certainly a broader question. I don't think it would be quite fair to point the blame at one institution because these are trends happening nationwide. From the students that I spoke with, it's certainly obviously a very sensitive subject. It's a combination of feeling like these stresses are, again, external, but also internal. Many of them, as I was saying, are very high achieving. They want to do well. And even if they have perhaps counselors or parents telling them, don't worry about this, just do your best. There is still, again, that internal pressure to, to achieve. So I don't know that they would necessarily place the blame on the school per se, but they sh- certainly it is a factor in, in increasing student stress. But I didn't hear from anyone who felt like it was appropriate to place the blame wholly on one school. Claire, I think it's, you're exactly right, the context around, it's not just, this is taking place in a very exclusive community, very exclusive school, but that mental health crisis, as you note in the CDC report, it's it's depressingly growing, you know, so I think by shining a light on it with this story, it just shows that it's probably more important ever to get help or to help be aware of students who may need help and to steer them to resources that they can find, right? Certainly, yeah. And it's always a tricky part of one thing when I was approaching the story that I was trying to be very cognizant and cautious about as well is, I mean, these, there had been very little coverage of the deaths to begin with, aside from the student newspaper, which I would like to laud. They've done some really great work, but for whatever reason, it hadn't really gotten a lot of mainstream attention. But There is also the concern of if there's so much media coverage about the deaths specifically that you don't want to ever glamorize or overly be dramatic about what's happening there in in a way that could be very triggering to students who are already vulnerable or in a way that makes it feel like this is an option that they want to seek to escape any sort of pain that they're feeling. So it's always a really hard balancing act, I think, covering this these kinds of stories because on one hand my hope is of course that if it gets covered more people will talk openly about mental health and have sort of more candid conversations about how to address this issue but at the same time you want to be of course respectful of the families and be cautious of harming or potentially triggering students who are already vulnerable great well clara thank you so much for you know making sense of all of this for us and bringing to light this important story in this issue thank you Michael, remember when feuds used to be about so much more than the latest Taylor Swift lyrics? Yeah, when they actually had some intellectual heft behind them. Ah, those were the days. Well, on the eve of a new documentary about the life and times of Tom Wolfe called Radical Wolfe, we have Alexandra Wolfe here to talk to us all about what her dad was really like in person and how the prominent feuds that he had with his compatriots like Norman Mailer not only helped define him, but define an era. Alexandra is a former staff reporter at the Wall Street Journal and the author of Valley of the Gods, a Silicon Valley story. Welcome, Alexandra. Thank you for having me. Okay, I'm just going to get this out of the way. I need a fangirl for a minute. Tom Wolf was your dad. I mean, that's the coolest thing I've heard in a long time. What was he like as a father? Well, when I was little, I really didn't notice any difference other than the fact that he wore a cape to school on a top hat and nobody else did. And he had these crazy shoes on called spats or they were sort of imitation spats. And so I knew that he didn't look like the other dads, like he didn't wear the same color suit or anything. And we, I, he got a lot of attention, but I didn't quite know why. I just knew that he for sure looked different than everybody else. And he worked at home, which now is pretty normal. But at the time, 
was pretty unusual to have like your dad taking up the front part of the house and you can't go in there and you just hear typing all day. So then I, so I didn't really realize until I was probably 10 or 11 that he was a writer. I mean, I knew he was a writer, but I didn't really sort of know the extent of his fame until later. So, okay. I'm sorry again, once I have to ask the most facile questions, like for what proportion of your childhood was he wearing a really good looking white suit? A pretty large portion. I mean, he usually left the house in a white suit, but he also had lots of different variations. I think I counted once in his closet and he had like 24 white suits, different fabrics. Um, but for casual attire, like if I used to ride horses and he'd go to horse shows in a tan suit, which was totally, it's like super casual wear. He'd go to the beach in a suit. It usually wasn't a white suit, but it was sort of like a pale blue jacket and white pants. But it was rare that I saw him without white pants at least. Okay, wait, here's an important question. When you were a toddler, did you ever get a stain on his clothes? (laughs) I'm sure I did, but he was really good at taking them out. I mean, like he did this all himself. He used to, like, what I remember him, he would spend hours polishing his shoes. So we had this whole, in his dressing room, in their, my parents' apartment in the city, he had this whole, like, secret wall. And if you opened the door to the secret wall, it sort of, like, folded out like a secret closet. It was, like, stacks and stacks of shoe polish and cleaning supplies. And, like, he didn't send this out. Like, he only trusted himself. And so he'd be sitting there, like, on the floor, like, polishing his leather satchel and shining his shoes and, like, de-staining things. So... He also he didn't really have a temper. So if he was mad, he didn't really let on. But I'm sure he did stay in his clothes quite a bit. <laughs> All right. Well, maybe that's a good transition into tempers. Yeah. I mean, exactly. Now that we've established that he was the most loving, fabulous father you could ever imagine, he had a slightly sharper side, especially when it came to the realm of the literary feud. He was a master of this art form as well as the novel and as well as journalism. So... What did a Tom Wolfe literary feud look like? Well, it was really a feud. I mean, it was only a feud on paper, really. I mean, which made it so much worse. As Gay Talese said in the film, he, Gay had this great line with a pen. He was a terrorist. And I mean, my father wouldn't say that himself, but it was such a great line. And I think the sort of lack of temper in person allowed him to have a temper in writing because he wasn't this dual personality. It's sort of one begot the other. I mean, he was so unassuming. He was so polite that he came up to you and you'd be like, oh, what a nice gentleman. And you could sort of tell him anything. And he sort of reported without judgment, which I think allowed him to get away with what he did because he's not, it, was, it wasn't opinionated. Of course, the feuds sort of were, but they were having fun with each other. I mean, I, Norman Miller had this line, reading a man in full is like making love to a 300 pound woman, fall in love or be asphyxiated. And I don't think my dad was not hurt by that. He was just like, oh, let me see what I can get back then. And so he sort of called them my three stooges, John Irving, John Updike and Norman Mailer. And he had so much fun, I'm sure, writing that article. And I think I wrote this piece for you for Airmail this weekend. And and when I actually met Norman Mailer, he sort of laughed about their feud. But my dad did used to say, he said, you know, you're nobody till somebody hates you. He sort of liked getting in these arguments. And as he called himself, being sort of party of the opposition. I think one thing that's so, I was new to New York then, and I remember like, and and watching these feuds and seeing, and what I think is when you talk about the pieces he wrote to sustain the feud, what strikes me is it was time before social media, right? And now this would be happening in little drips and drabs on, across Twitter, right? Little snipes. And yet then to come out, but now like the feud would just come out fully formed in a like a 5,000 word essay, like, and just drop. And everyone then had to read it, right? And I think that's been lost too. Just like the big 
broadside, right? Absolutely. I mean, you're totally right. I mean, I was reading it a, a bit about the Lillian Hellman, Mary McCarthy feud, and it was sort of like a saga. You're right. If today it would have just been over, it would have been this explosion one day, and then everybody would take sides and somebody would be canceled or whatever. And then, or both of them, who knows? But then, but back then, it's sort of somebody says something on a talk show, the other person responds later, and that there's this suspense to it. You sort of wonder, like, who's going to say what next? Who's going to win? Who's right? And no one was right because often before they used to be fights over like a style or a, a way of writing or sort of something totally different than sort of like morality. Today, it's like, who's right? Who's wrong? Back then, it wasn't like that. It was sort of this sort of fun story, this feud between two writers who respected each other. Yeah, you had to wait for the thing. And there was this anticipation as like you heard, he's working on a story, it's going to, and like, oh my God. So it's like advancing troops coming to the border. <laughs> uh, I didn't realize this. I learned a lot from the movie. I didn't realize that before the, I think Gage, at least again, said that when Manful came out, my father had made all these pronouncements about the great American novel. And Gage said, I knew right before that book came out, they're going to kill him. And now it's not like you would never have that indecision before a book comes out. It's sort of there isn't that same kind of dialogue. Maybe it can happen again. I don't know. Maybe someone will come up with some new social media writers outlet. As you note in your story this week, I mean, I think your father was a Southerner and it seems he brought us that sort of that gentlemanly sort of a perspective to a feud, right? It's sort of like, I'll see you at dawn. Do you get that as well? Like, I mean, like it was good natured and there was an intelligence to it, right? Well, it's true. I mean, he would never... He sort of got a kick out of the fact that I think it was one of his adversaries on television just got so worked up and upset. And that delighted my father because he was like, oh, we don't do that in the South. It's sort of like, we don't get worked up. We don't curse out anybody. But he realized that was sort of how he it was sort of a way of winning by being sort of this, like a, a gentleman, really. So, I mean, even my father, when my father first became famous, I was reading these old letters from his father and he had this this first magazine profile back when he was like in his 30s or something. And his father, I found this letter from his father to the writer of the article saying, thank you for writing about my son. I really appreciate that you commented on his manners. Like that was why he was proud, not because of the writing he was doing, because, oh, he said that he had good manners. So yeah, it was different then. <laughs> I think the last thing I was going to say is like, I mean, watching what your father did to Anthony Hayden Guest and uh, out of driven by a feud and you think like, you know what? There's no greater honor than Tom Wolf sort of like turning you into a character in one of the greatest books ever. Like if that's going to settle the feud, what do I have to do to get in a feud with Tom Wolf? Right? <laughs> well, it is funny sort of dappled through his books are sort of the results of these feuds with people. I mean, he really didn't have that many fights with people other than in writing. And he always got his revenge in writing. I mean, he sort of recreated these characters as sort of caricatures. And I didn't even know until I read Anthony Hayden Getz's piece that he, he was so open about it. I sort of thought it was this well-kept secret. But after my father passed away, he wrote that my father went up to him at Jordan Gregg's book party for his book on Lucian Freud and said, the hatchet is buried, which is so funny because they never spoke again. I mean, they were super close friends. They went to dinner all the time. And then suddenly when he introduced him to Christopher Hitchens, then Hitchens wrote this not so nice profile about my father. They never spoke again. And then Bond by the Vanities comes out and it's like, oh, I guess that's how dad feels. <laughs> but I guess they made up at the end, at least. 
Alexander, last week, Michael and I got in a bit of a fight about, it wasn't that bad. We didn't come to blows, but about our favorite Tom Wolfe book. And now we need to know yours. Oh, you can ask a daughter her favorite book. Come on. He's looking down on me. That's so unfair. Well, I just reread Bonfire of the Vanities. And it was so, at the moment, that's my favorite because it's so similar to today. I mean, it, it is an 80s book, but there's so many parallels to what's going on today. And, um, and so that has resonated lately. Well, Alexander, thank you so much for joining us and giving us this great insight into your father. We absolutely loved our conversation. Me too. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Take care. Gosh, I mean, how cool would that have been to have Tom Wolf as your dad? Like you would just grow up knowing what a good suit was looking like. Yeah. And you just, I love how in the documentary you learn how just calm and cool he was at home. And, uh, but what a fantastic person to, to have as a father. So, yeah, pretty great. Alexander, I think it's time for your memoir about growing up with your dad. Anyway, just a thought. We're here to solve all the problems of the world on morning meeting. Michael, it is the weekend. Good times are ahead. I know you've got something delicious to recommend to us. I do. And I'm going to do a little pivot here. Watch how we do this. Going from catty behavior in the literary world and feuds. How about to the catwalk? I know you're probably getting all... Have you seen the new documentary, The Supermodels on Apple? No, it's like I've read so much about it that I feel like I don't need to watch it because spending too much time in the presence of supermodels just makes me feel bad about myself. But that's just my problem, not yours. Tell me, is it good? You know what, Ashley? It's a pretty fun pop culture documentary, but it's not just about the original supermodels, Naomi Campbell, Christy Turlington, Linda Evangelista, and Cindy Crawford. But it's also a good look at the culture of the 90s, the music scene, New York City, clubs, glossy magazines, big ad campaigns. And it's great to watch it all unfold in a world that was before social media. It's something gossipy, which I think you'd like, Ashley, and it's revealing. And I think it's a fun thing to watch in parallel with Fashion Week as it's unfolding right now in Europe. It's called The Supermodels and it's on Apple TV+. And you, my dear, what do you have this weekend? Two things. First is Alec Lebrano. For, for those who go to Paris and those who know about the Ritz, which is pretty much everyone who's ever been to that city, Espadon at the Ritz has reopened. It is the marquee restaurant there and it has been closed since 2020 during the pandemic. It was shut down and now it's just reopened with a new chef named Eugenie Beziat. And Alec Lebrano went and met with her and interviewed her and tried her food for us. And wow, it sounds really extraordinary. It, usually restaurants in these extremely fancy hotels just sell fancy caviar and truffles, but She's doing something really interesting. It's like they're not just going to do a great hotel restaurant that rakes in a lot of cash. They're really looking back to the legacy of the Ritz. Escoffier was the first chef there when it opened in the late 19th century. And now Beziat, Eugenie Beziat is doing really interesting things with food. She was born in West Africa and she grew up in Gabon, the Ivory Coast and the Congo. And she's bringing all of those flavors into the cuisine. It's a tiny little restaurant. I think they only have a handful of tables. And it's all served on Asté de Villat plates, which is exciting. Anyway, it just sounds like a real design and food moment. So if you're going to Paris and you want to try something new, Espadon at the Ritz really looks special. And then the other story is Christine Mulkey has spoken with Andrew Tarlow, who is the Brooklyn restaurateur behind Diner. And he has a new book out that traces the 25-year history of this restaurant. Now, when I moved to New York, I lived in Williamsburg and I lived about 30 feet away from diner and I probably spent 75% of my paycheck eating there. It was just not only the great food, but it was really a happening. And there were interesting people in there every night and it felt like such a special place. For me, diner is always going to be synonymous with my 20s in New York. It's also a great book for those not only who love the history of food and restaurants, but who also relish the opportunity to live in this really particular 
part of New York in this really cool New York moment. So the book is called Diner Day for Night, and you can read all about it in the issue. Thank you all so much for joining us. Wishing you a great weekend. Michael, will you please read us out? I'll read us out. I'm just wondering now if we ever sat next to each other at diner back in the day and didn't even know it. That's for another time and place. Honey, how could I ever forget you? You're unforgettable. (laughs) All right, listeners. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan. And our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly, but we will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meaning. But in the meantime, be sure to subscribe to Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thank you again for joining us. <laughs>